Hello and welcome to Let the Stone Speak. My name is Christopher Ames and I'll be your guest host for today's program. I'm coming to you today from the beautiful Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, located here in the center of what is today a wet and cold Jerusalem. But for today's program, we'll be taking you out to one of the exciting and important biblical archaeology sites located here in Israel. But before we do so, I wanted to remind you to, if you're not already, subscribe to our magazine, our full-color, free, bi-monthly, 40-page magazine of the same name, Let the Stone Speak. We just received our new shipment of the latest magazine, the January-February issue of Let the Stone Speak, on the topic of Abrahamic-era Jerusalem. So if you're not subscribed, there's nothing to lose. There's no cost, obligation, follow-up, or advertisements. You can do so on our website, armstronginstitute.org, and I'll leave a link in the description below for you to do so as well. And you can also catch up on past issues on our publications tab on the website. Right, with that being said, let's head off and check out the site. Hello and welcome to Tel Gezer. Gezer is one of the most important archaeological sites in Israel. It's also an extremely important site in the biblical account. It's mentioned nearly 20 times. Now, this site is located about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in that direction to my left. And then Tel Aviv is on the opposite side. Now, Gezer is situated on a very important trade route known as the Via Maris, which connects Egypt in the south all the way up to Syria in the north. Now, from the biblical account, we know that Gezer was in play for several periods, uh, from the Canaanite period on through the times of the biblical monarchy, and from archaeological excavations that have happened here, we know that that history continues right up until modern times. Now, normally when it comes to identifying biblical sites, typically we archaeologists won't find a big sign saying, this is whatever biblical site it is. This is Jericho, or this is Lachish. Usually archaeologists will have to work with what they find in the ground, or the biblical account describing the geography around the site or perhaps classical accounts. Gezer is a fascinating exception to that rule. In the late 19th century, several boundary stones were actually found around this site, dating most likely to the Hasmonean period. And on these stones were bilingual inscriptions, so in Aramaic and in Greek, saying, this is the boundary of Gezer. So Gezer is one of those sites that have been absolutely identified. This is Gezer. We know it right from the beginning. And so from that starting point, archaeologists can then come to the site, as they have done over the past roughly 100, 150 years, and start finding what they find in the ground and be able to compare that to the biblical account and see if they match up. So we're going to take you around the site. We're going to take you around the site chronologically. So we'll start with the Canaanite material first. We've come down here to the Canaanite gate of the city. This gate is on the south side of Tel Gezer. Now, I'll say for all those who, who aren't aware, a tel is an artificial hill mound uh, that constitutes many of these cities around Israel. So typically, when, when one city would come to a location, uh, preferably a raised location like Tel Gezer is and like the name somewhat means, 
uh, they'll build their city on top of this location and then later on, say if, if another civilization comes and conquers that city, they will build on top of that and essentially what you have is a layer cake type system in which you've got this artificial hill mound developing and you can see that quite clearly behind us. You see the extent of the hill as it is right now and the amount that the excavators have had to dig through to reveal this Canaanite entrance to the city. This is the Canaanite gate, the southern entrance to the city during the first part of the second millennium BCE, more specifically about the 17th century BCE. So we're talking about 3,700 years ago within that time frame. And what we're looking at here is a really impressive mud brick and stone structure. This is very typical of what's called the Middle Bronze period, this Canaanite period in which the city was established. You can see the stone foundation that has been laid and topped by these mud brick towers on either side. Now this is again a, a typical gate construction. We'll see that at other sites that we go to. And what you'll notice here is these huge stone pilasters that help actually constrict the flow of people in and out of the city and also serve as the supports for what archaeologists believe originally were was a wooden gate system that allowed entrance to and from the city of course that gate has that the wooden gate has deteriorated since then it's incredible that these mud bricks have remained preserved for getting on nearly 4000 years so an amazing gate system dating to the Canaanite period that really speaks to the power of the Canaanite rulers of the city during that time. Now this gate actually is part of an inner wall system. So during the late bronze period, this is the second half of the second millennium BCE, an outer wall system was built around this uh, what would then be an inner wall system and this gate was actually filled up and fell out of use. So this original inner gate system constituted a powerful fortification line from the time of the patriarchs, around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is perhaps what they may have seen coming through this area, uh, this powerful mud brick and stone fortification. I'm now standing atop of what has been identified as the largest Canaanite tower ever discovered. Now, of course, as with many things in archaeology, that's going to be arguable. But this tower is located along the same fortification line that connects with the Middle Bronze Age Canaanite Gate, which is about 20 meters away to the west. Now, as stated, the weak point in a city is naturally going to be its opening, its gatehouse. And so it makes sense for a powerful fortification tower to be located right next to the gatehouse. Now what you see here is a tower that was excavated to an extent of about 16 meters by 20 meters and to a preserved height of about 5 meters. If you look at the stonework around me, you can see that it's remarkably flat on this level. So that shows that this was the original uh, intended height of the stonework itself and archaeologists surmise that there must have been a mud brick tower up on top of this similar to the gatehouse itself. This was likely a powerful stronghold perhaps even palatial who knows what kind of mud brick rooms would have been situated originally on top of this tower and again this tower speaks to the size and impressiveness of this site 
during the Canaanite period. Now it's believed that there were about 25 of these towers around Tel Gezer. This is sitting on a fortification line of about 1.2 kilometers. Now if we turn to the biblical account, in Joshua 16 verse 10 we read, They drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in the midst of Ephraim unto this day, and became servants to do task work. So a very interesting mention of the site, and a very interesting corroboration with archaeological evidence as well. If you look at a series of texts that are known as the Amana letters, these were discovered in Egypt, at a administrative center known as Tel El Amana. Several cuneiform tablets, clay tablets, have been found at that site from various leaders around Canaan, pleading with the Pharaoh for help in defense against these invading Habiru. So naturally, what, what comes first to mind is that, oh, well, these must be the Hebrews. Now, there's a huge archaeological debate and firestorm about this. We will actually be having an article come out on this subject. But among this trove of Amana tablets is a letter uh, or a series of letters referring to the city of Gezer or Gazru, as it's referred to on these letters. And these letters record that the king of Gezer was fighting against these uh, invaders, but it seems like there was some kind of insurrection happening within the city of Geza against the king. And it seems like the people within the city ended up giving their allegiance over to outside forces. Now, when we compare that to the biblical account, we see that the Bible says not that Geza was taken by violence by Joshua and the Israelites, but that the king of Geza went out to help the king of Lachish in battle, in a, in a staged land battle elsewhere against the Israelites, and that later on we suddenly read about Gezer being in the hands of Israel, but the Israelites allowing the Canaanites to remain. So it seems like against the backdrop of the Almana letters, which seem to match quite well with the biblical account, that there was perhaps some underhand dealings there and a conquest of the city wasn't actually necessary. The king who was against the Israelites, he was killed elsewhere and then the people of the city turned it over peacefully, more or less, it seems, to the Israelites and the Israelites allowed them to remain. What we read here is that they drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in the midst of Ephraim, unto this day and became servants to do task work. So what we read here is that Gezer became situated as part of the tribal allotment of Ephraim. Now Gezer was right on the border with uh, the Philistine territory out to the east. And so this again was a very important border site. So to sum up this Canaanite period fortification is what would have been witnessed and familiar to the Israelites coming into the land, this powerful fortification. But as it turns out, it appears that the Israelites had no need of conquering the city. The Canaanites seem to have turned it over peaceably to them. We get that sense from the biblical account. We get that sense from the Amana letters in Egypt. On to the next site. We're standing now at the entrance to the water system, again dating to the Canaanite time period and located just inside this Canaanite city, just inside the gatehouse, up and out to my right, 
your left and the tower on the other side. Now naturally, if you're going to be establishing a city, you want secure access to water, and that's what we see from this period. And that's what we see through the biblical accounts. There are a lot of accounts of wells being dug, and that fits with the establishment of a lot of these cities at this time period. So what you might be able to hear in the background are bats. There are a lot of bats in this water tunnel system. It's a total of 70 meters long and uh, 30 to 40 meters below ground to the water table. An immense tunnel system that again was dug during this Middle Bronze Age Canaanite period through the bedrock. 70 meters long, about four meters wide, seven meters tall, this tunnel passage, and we're going to go down about uh, 175 steps. We're now in the center of the Tel, in the center of Tel Gezer, and we find ourselves in the midst of these unusual stones here. Now this is what was originally a cultic site or, or a temple site. Normally when archaeologists use the term cultic, it's often when they don't understand something. It refers to, okay, maybe it's of a religious nature that we don't quite understand. Um, and there's a lot of debate about this site here in the center of the Tel. Now it was first uncovered again by RAS McAllister in the first part of the 1900s when only the very tippy tops of these stones were shown and he excavated down through a lot of this material and found these huge standing stones. These are known as Masibot or Masiba singular and these are some of the biggest standing stones in all of Israel. Now, standing stones are used often in a religious context. They certainly are here, and not always a pagan context either. Several passages talk about how Moses, for example, set up stones or standing stones, Masibot, uh, reflective of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The kings of Israel were coronated on or next to a pillar or pillar stone or standing stone, a Masibah. So what we have here is the series of 10 massive standing stones. They're identified maybe as a sign of allegiance with 10 of the surrounding sites. And it's believed that this was originally a temple area, perhaps a colonnaded area that encircled these standing stones. Now what we see to my right here is a stone basin, uh, probably for blood libation, for some kind of pagan ritual going on at the time. Now the Bible talks a lot about child sacrifice going on at some of these Canaanite sites and condemning the Canaanites for that. And what R.A.S. McAllister discovered in this area were several urns or jars which contained the bones of children uh, as young as weeks old to about six years old. And also below this site, he discovered a cave in which there was an, a sort of an altar inside the remains of children within that cave as well. So there's a, again a lot of debate as to the connection of child sacrifice specifically with this site. Uh, but there's a great video on the subject. You can check out Expedition Bible's video on this subject. Uh, but some really grisly finds that were discovered in this area, again, from the Canaanite period before the, the Israelites came in and settled this area. So we've just come from the Canaanite period or the, the center of the Canaanite period and from the center of Tel Gezer. And continuing on through 
history, what we notice at the site of Gezer is a Philistine occupation from about the 12th century BCE onwards. Now this is about the same time that the strongman Samson from the Bible comes on the scene. So this is a time when the Philistines, again, Gezer is right on the border with Philistia. This is a time when the Philistines are dramatically rising in power and oppressing Israel. And we see evidence for their control in the archaeological record at the site on through, it seems, to the time of Solomon. And this is a good connection with the biblical account. In 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4, And it came to pass after this that there arose a war at Gezer with the Philistines. Now this only makes sense if the Philistines were the ones in control of the site. And then it goes on to continue to describe the account of the battles against the giants, the Philistine giants. Now, just following this period, we have an invasion described in the Bible during the time of Solomon, accounted to the Pharaoh of Egypt. 1 Kings 9 verse 16, quote, Pharaoh king of Egypt had gone up and had taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city. So again, this was still a city within which the Canaanites were living, controlled variously by the Israelites at the time of the conquest, but still living with the Canaanites, controlled variously by Egypt, and also controlled variously by the Philistines. But here in this passage, from the time of Solomon, we read again that the Pharaoh had taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it for a portion unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. Again, Solomon married the Egyptian princess. And so now we enter Solomonic Gezer. I'm standing at the threshold of what is famously one of the Solomonic gates, uh, one of the four chief Solomonic gates described in the Bible. You can read about that in the very same passage. The verse prior, this reads, quote, And this is the account of the levy or tax which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Eternal and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Chazor and Megiddo and Gezer. And what you see before me here is a six-chambered gate, very iconic, dating to the 10th century BCE, the same period in which King Solomon was on the scene. We see a similar gatehouse found in Jerusalem, Megiddo and Chazor, and Gezer ties it all together. Now, this gatehouse was first excavated by R.A.S. McAllister, who actually dated it to a different time period initially. Later on in the 60s, it was excavated by Professor Yigal Yadin, and then later by William Deaver. And so what you can see before me is a six-chambered gatehouse layout. Now, the Bible talks about in several passages that business was conducted in the gates of a city. You can read about that with the book of Ruth and Boaz organizing the details of marriage to Ruth in the gate of the city. In the time of David, his commander Joab actually taking a man aside and murdering him in the gate of the city. Now, at first glance, that would seem to be the worst possible place to do that because surely that's the most public place. But actually what you can see is you've got these very private chambers in which business, trade, transactions can be carried out. And what you also see is this drainage point leading outside the city. Now originally this would have been paved over, 
But this is another typical feature of these gatehouses, this drainage point leading outside the city. Now, proceeding toward the west, you can see the continuation of this 10th century city, again dating to the time period of Solomon. Some have called it Solomon's Palace, obviously not the Jerusalem Palace, but a palatial complex nonetheless. On this, revealed on this southern portion of Tel Geza. Another thing of note is a casemate wall which has been exposed attaching to the six-chambered gatehouse. Now this was another classic Israelite style method of construction, this hollow wall so to speak, two thinner sets of walls making up uh, an overall casemate wall and in times of, of war this wall could be filled in making it that much uh, thicker and more powerful and the same is true of this gatehouse itself again gatehouses are the weak point of the city but with these chambers filled in with rubble and boulders that essentially makes the gatehouse the widest part of the wall during a siege situation this speaks to the uh, grandeur of the 10th century BCE again the time of Solomon and fits perfectly with the account of these parallel constructions dating to the same time period found particularly by Professor Yigal Yadin at three sites, Gezer, Megiddo, and Hatzor, and then more recently by Dr. Elat Mazar in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in more detail in our article on our website, A Study into King Solomon's Four Monumental Gates. I'm standing now right next to one of the most famous discoveries here at Tel Geza. This is known as the Geza Calendar. Now, if you're like me, the first time I visited this site, I thought, wow, this is a massive inscription. Actually, it's a replica of an original inscription that was about the size of a mobile phone, about only 11 centimeters tall. Now, this discovery was made, this small tablet, uh, the reconstruction of which we can see here, it was made in 1908, again during the excavations of McAllister. At that time, of course, Israel was under Turkish control, and so thus this inscription is currently housed at the Istanbul Museum in Turkey. Now this inscription is incredibly special because it dates to the 10th century BCE, the same period as the Solomonic city, and what this is essentially is a country calendar, an agricultural calendar that lays out the uh, processes, sowing and, and reaping periods throughout the agricultural year. Now this calendar, the full text of it reads as follows. Two months harvesting, September, October. Two months sowing, which would be November, December. Two months late planting, which would be January, February one month cutting flax, which would be March, one month reaping barley, which would be April, one month reaping and measuring, which would be May, two months pruning, June and July, one month of summer fruit, which would be August. Now what we see at the base of this inscription is the name slightly cut off here. We see Abi, um, most likely it was the longer name Abijah. So the name Abijah is found most often in the Bible dating to the 10th century BC, in this 10th century BC period. I think it's more or less 16 out of 20 times in the Bible we see the name Abijah from this specific period. So we know that this was the common name 
at that time. We can't know if it was exactly, obviously, one of these Abijahs from the Bible, but we at least know that this is a common name. Also, another interesting thing about this name is that it's a Yahwist name, or a name with a Yahweh element within the name, which points to the God of Israel, of course. And at the time, that would make this the earliest uh, mention of the name with a Yahweh element found within, within such a personal name here in Israel. So what this calendar speaks to is the literacy here in Israel at the time. Uh, during this early period, the 10th century BCE, a hotly debated topic, especially among a minimalist camp that tries to say that Israel was generally a powerless and illiterate nation. But what this speaks to is the literacy here in Israel, and even more so because it is believed based on the layout of this text, on the, uh, the material that it was based on, and the kind of dry recitation nature of it, that this was actually maybe a child's uh, exercise within a school, writing out this, this agricultural calendar. So again, a fascinating inscription, and one of the most famous that has come from this site here at Geza. Thanks for joining us here at Tel Geza. We hope you've enjoyed our briefest of tours here at the site. We've got a lot more detail on our website about this site articles about the site and more specific videos about various aspects of the site done by your regular host, Brent Nagtigale. So hopefully we'll see you next time at the next archeological site. <laughs>